Hello again, I'm Peter Goodwin with more audio news from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Later in the programme we'll be hearing how global warming could kill you, about a tropical virus reaching temperate countries, how your chances of surviving cancer depend on where you live, and from the editor of two free scientific journals. But first, a big new study has found that eating oily fish such as sardines, tuna and mackerel is associated with having better eyesight later in life. These fish all contain an omega-3 fatty acid called DHA. Astrid Fletcher explained to me how, in the study, they related diet to age-related macular degeneration, AMD, the third most common cause of blindness around the world. What we did actually was a population-based study in seven different European countries. So we had a nice big variety of lifestyles and dietary habits, ranging from Norway, which was the most northerly country, right down to Spain. And all the participants in the study uh, were given dietary questionnaires. These were administered by trained field workers. And these questionnaires asked people about a, a very, very wide range of foods that they might eat, typically in a month, uh, with different frequencies of how often they eat these over the previous year. And how many people were there in the study and how many had AMD, macular degeneration, due to age? Well, what we did was we had 4,700 participants in the study and every one of those had a photograph taken of the back of the eye of the fundus. And this was then graded at an independent grading centre. And from that we were able to see how many people had late AMD and how many also had no signs at all. And those acted as the controls in the analysis. So what we did is we had um, 158 people who had late AMD and approximately 2,000 people who had no signs of AMD. The other people uh, are people who had various signs um, of irregularities in the retina. Uh, some of those people may go on to develop AMD. So they are not included as the control group, but we also did look at those people separately. And what did you find in terms of what they were eating? First of all, we looked at the portions of oily fish that they consumed. And we found approximately a 50% reduction in the chance of having AMD for those people who consumed oily fish at least once a week. In our study, we found no benefit from eating white fish. And that's an important point. If you want to get your omega-3 fatty acids, you need to get it from the right kind of fish. As far as you're concerned, would you eat fish, oily fish, twice a week in order to hopefully avoid AMD? Yes, I would. Um, because although the definitive studies in terms of longitudinal prospective studies are not here yet, I think there is enough evidence both from what we know in the animal studies and also from the uh, other studies that have been done in Western populations which suggest fairly consistently that it's plausible that there is going to be a protective effect of eating oily fish. I would like to point out though that neither our data nor data at the moment from any other studies uh, shows any benefit of supplementation. Now there tends to be a bit of a rush to take a supplement when actually it could be met 
by using the appropriate diet. Now, there is then, as you say, the possibility of going to your chemist, but you're saying don't do that, eat the fish itself. Well, you know, there's always a little bit of a worry about adverse effects of supplements. One possible downside is that uh, we know that uh, high doses of omega-3 can increase bleeding time. So to give a, a quick recommendation, what might be the cautious recommendation coming out of your very interesting study? There are uh, international recommendations based on current evidence for other diseases that people should take in around 500 milligrams of both EPA and DHA and that can be achieved by eating two three to four ounce portions of an oily fish such as tuna, sardine, mackerel. So it's not too difficult as long as you have a, a taste for fish. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> I agree. If you don't like fish, well, maybe you'll be able to see what the supplement trials say, but that's at least 10 years off. That was Astrid Fletcher, Professor of Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Her study on AMD has just been published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And apparently there's no clear evidence that taking pills containing the fatty acids brings the same benefit as eating oily fish. Astrid mentioned to me, by the way, that smoking is an even bigger cause of AMD, so this is yet another reason not to smoke. Tropical diseases are spreading to Europe and other temperate regions. Joe Lines gave a talk at the British Association Science Festival in Liverpool about the chikungunya virus spread by mosquitoes. I asked him first to tell me what this virus is. Chikungunya is a virus closely related to dengue virus, which a lot of people will have heard of. It causes a disease that's just as unpleasant as dengue. It causes very bad joint pain, where, where dengue rather affects the muscles. But it doesn't, on the whole, cause the life-threatening symptoms that dengue can do. So it doesn't kill too many people, chikungunya, but it's a nasty, short infection. In the normal course of events, it lives in Africa, in places like part of Tanzania and Mozambique, but there have been outbreaks elsewhere, haven't there, recently? Its home is in Africa, and it was first discovered in, in East Africa. But yes, for the last few years, there have been major epidemics spreading through the Indian Ocean, all through the Indian Ocean, especially the Indian Ocean Islands, uh, Reunion, Mauritius, and most recently in India. And it is in India that supposedly the index case came into Italy, a business person from Italy returning to Italy with the virus and starting an epidemic last year in 2007 in which there were something like 200 cases and one lady did die. What in fact might be the cause of this? Is it something like global warming? Well, global warming must have something to do with it, but I think the big event, most people would agree, was the arrival of the vector, this Aedes albopictus. It's the Asian tiger mosquito, which arrived in 1990, I think, in Italy, and through the 90s spread gradually throughout the country, and in some places reached quite high densities. And it's the coincidence of the returning visitor from India and the spread of this mosquito. So these are two aspects of globalization, the globalization of the mosquito and uh, increased human movement, which is really the underlying cause. A permissive cause is probably global warming. So this is the first time we've seen a major outbreak of chikungunya so far from the equator, 
it's been there have been outbreaks in South Africa before, uh, but now I think this is the uh, most distant from the equator it's ever been. From your position as a leading commentator here in Britain on this disease and and its spread, what would you say health workers and ordinary people all over the world in various countries should be doing about what seems like quite a worrying threat? We need surveillance for both the mosquito, where it does not yet exist especially, uh, and cases of chikungunya and dengue-like infections. We know now that, that cases of dengue and chikungunya are being imported into northern Europe and North America with increasing frequency. And we do need health system surveillance for those cases. We also need, in places where the mosquito has not yet uh, arrived, not yet colonized, good surveillance for that. And now, uh, in at least some northern European countries, including the UK, uh, there are surveillance systems for the mosquito. People can send in mosquitoes that they catch at home if they're worried about them. Joe Lines, expert on malaria and vector biology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Many people could die during heat waves as global warming advances, but a good proportion of these deaths could be avoided by proper planning. Sari Kovats told delegates to the British Association meeting how this could be done, and I asked her first about the European heat wave of 2003, in which nearly 14,000 people died in France in just three weeks. What were they dying from? Well, in Paris, a lot of people died from heat stroke, but they also die from respiratory failure, heart disease, actually quite a range of causes of death on their death certificate are elevated during heat waves. So it has a very kind of non-specific effect. And of course, heat stroke deaths are difficult to ascertain, particularly if the person is found dead. In the UK, we didn't have any heat stroke deaths. They were all cardiorespiratory mortality and other types of death are also affected. But it's very likely we will get more heat waves. But those heat waves will also be hotter. So instead of being one or two degrees above average, they might be in the region of five or six degrees above normal. So there's real questions here about how we're going to cope with those higher temperatures. And from what you found from the previous heat wave uh, uh, just uh, five years ago, then it seems that uh, heart disease is a a leading killer, cardiac effects, and also respiratory conditions in a place like London. Well, well, that's one of the questions we've been looking at. Obviously, you could target interventions or make sure you advise people with heart disease about how they should behave in hot weather. But in fact, a lot of conditions seem to elevate the risk um, of dying in a heat wave um, and also mental health issues and some motor or musculoskeletal conditions also were found to increase your risks. Um, And people with diabetes and who have kidney trouble are also at risk. So it's very important that these people have given the correct messages. Looking ahead at increasingly hot summers and the risk of heat waves, What should governments be doing about this? Ordinary people should make sure their health needs are catered to well and should actually recognise there's a risk, but what do you think can governments do to prepare? One key thing at the moment is how to design houses for both heat and for cold. At the moment, they're being better adapted to cold and becoming much better insulated, but some of these technological changes may not help the inhabitants when the summers become warmer. So there's, there's a lot of research about how housing affects people's health and how to adapt to both winter and to hotter summers. So you think the world could be better prepared for heat waves and save many, many lives, hundreds of thousands by the sound of it? 
Well, yes, absolutely. Heatwave deaths should be largely preventable. But again, and the heat waves in the US showed that a lot of impacts were about social exclusion. People remember back to the 95 heat wave in Chicago. A lot of the people there were the urban poor, the urban elderly poor who died. So it was very much to do with social determinants of health and access to services. And the determinants were v- are very different from country to country. Part of this is due to climate. And obviously, temperate countries where we're not well adapted to hot summers, we actually have a bigger burden than in very hot countries in the tropics, for example, where they have better housing or better adapted housing and behaviours and so on. Sari Kovats of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The school's Colin Sutherland told the British Association Festival Goers about the newest form of scientific publishing called open access publishing. He's in fact an editor of two such internet scientific journals and I asked him first to explain what exactly is open access publishing. I can explain it best by contrasting to the classic form of scientific publication where a publishing house charges the readers a lot of money to read their articles written by scientists and specialists in the field of their journal. Open access publishing turns that on its head so that the readers of the scientific articles have free open access via the internet to the material and the whole system is financed by other means. Right, the journal is on the web and the people who read it get it for free as long as they've got internet access. Yes, that's correct. What are the advantages though? Because in the traditional technique, the learned journals are very choosy about which pieces of research they publish, aren't they? Yes, no, that's absolutely right. So to keep their readership up, the classic scientific journals seek the highest impact science, the most uh, attractive and easier to sell science, if you like, to ensure that they maintain their share of the readership. Now, can I ask you, though, about the advantage of this? And I've got to get you to talk about your own particular area, which is malaria in Africa. Yes, well, I think malaria is an excellent example of how open access publishing can uh, really benefit people in the field. For a start, uh, the end users of a lot of the knowledge that we create as malaria specialists will be in endemic countries. And that, of course, means in particular sub-Saharan Africa, also Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and uh, Latin America. And in many of those countries and in many institutions where this knowledge will be of benefit, there are not the financial resources to subscribe to expensive scientific journals. Are there, however, internet connections? Oh yes, I mean that is uh, part of the uh, revolution in information that is particularly pleasing to us working in this field is that our colleagues in Africa and other parts of the world, by and large, have reasonably good access to the internet. Can I ask you a bit about the open access journals that you are contributing to and what sort of articles and what sort of readers might access these? Yes, well, interestingly, I perform both editorial and reviewing tasks for two competing open access houses. One of them is called the Public Library of Science, Uh, and the other is Biomed Central, who sponsored my talk at the uh, festival. So both these houses work on a fairly similar model, and they have a range of journals across general medical areas, but also specialist areas. And 
they try and keep volume going by publishing excellent articles in both specialist and general areas. How well are the journals going right now then? Well, and, and this, this is why uh, some of the traditional journals are quite upset. Some of them have attracted very high impact factors, which is one measure of scientific publishing excellence, not necessarily the best measure. They are certainly attracting a lot of submissions, and they are also, and I think this is a key point, they are taking up a lot of the reviewers that would be normally providing their free peer review services to the traditional journals. In your own area of malaria, I'd like to try and pin you down to some sort of concrete benefit that you might think will come out of this, because there are already journals that deal with malaria. From my point of view, the, the, the most immediate and important concrete benefit is that my African colleagues can immediately see some of the most important high-quality papers as soon as they come out for free. And this is, means that they can be right at the forefront of current events and, and movement in science. That was Colin Sutherland, who's been addressing the annual meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in Liverpool. Your chances of surviving more than five years after being diagnosed with cancer could vary widely depending on where in the world you live. That's according to the findings of the Concord study published in The Lancet. I went to meet the lead author, Michelle Coleman, to ask him about Concord. It brings together data on individual cancer patients diagnosed in 31 countries around the world, diagnosed with one of four uh, particular cancers, breast cancer in women, cancer of the colon and rectum, that is the large bowel in both sexes, and cancer of the prostate. And we brought together data on almost two million patients diagnosed with one of these cancers in the early 1990s and who had been followed up for at least five years to determine what their survival was at that point after diagnosis. Now this then represented an opportunity to find out which approaches to cancer treatment were working better. What in fact did you find? Well, indirectly, what you say is true, except we didn't have data on the way in which these patients had been treated. That's the sort of thing that will come in a second step. Our first attempt here was to determine what the actual patterns of survival were. Are they higher or lower in various countries than others? And of course, that is what we found. And nobody's going to be surprised that we found a variation in survival. I was surprised at the range of survival. It's huge. And what is it? Well, for example, if you look at uh, survival from breast cancer um, in the USA and Canada and in Australia, it's 80% or more at five years after diagnosis, where in a country like Algeria and parts of Brazil, it's down to around 40%. And those differences are huge. Can you summarize the differences that emerged in the other three cancers that you were looking at? Well, broadly speaking, they're similar. If you the highest levels of survival were found in the USA for breast cancer in women and for prostate cancer, and variously in France or Japan for the cancers of the colon and rectum in men or women respectively. Um, and Algeria was at the bottom end of the global scale, if you like, um, for all 
of the or four of those cancers. And in one sense, if, if you accept that there is a sort of ranking of countries by their survival, then to some extent it reflects their wealth, the strength of their economies, and the amount of money they're able to deploy for healthcare expenditure. But we had no direct information on that for each individual patient or how they were treated. The first step is to see what the pattern of survival is, and then, now that we've shown that it's very widely different, to inquire what are the reasons behind it and to look at patterns of treatment and delay in diagnosis. Now, within the United States, I gather you actually discovered a difference between racial groups. We did see this difference. We didn't discover it. It's been known for some time that survival in blacks is lower than survival in whites in the USA. But until now, the only survival data from the USA have come from what is called the SEER program. That stands for Surveillance, Epidemiology and End Results. And until the late 1990s, that program only covered 10% of the US population. In the Concord study, we covered 40%. And we brought in uh, 11 states, data, survival data from 11 states that had never previously been able to do it. And we provi provided data for 16 states and six metropolitan areas across the USA. And what we've shown is that the gap in survival between blacks and whites is very large, is very consistent, uh, right across the USA in metropolitan areas, in urban areas, and that is even after controlling for the fact that we know black people have higher death rates generally than do white people. What might be the reasons for that and what also might be the reasons for the twofold difference in breast cancer survival from country to country? Well, in the case of within the USA, where in principle people should have access to the same standards of health care, the differences in survival, um, the magnitude of those differences probably won't surprise most people who've worked in the field. Um, it will surprise, I think, most people the extent of this difference across the USA, and I think that is likely to be attributable to differences in access to health care, delay in diagnosis, inadequate health insurance and lesser access to the kind of health care that is commonly or more commonly available to whites. And are those reasons the same uh, to explain the difference between one country and another? To some extent they must be. Again we don't have direct evidence from this particular study but if you look at other studies and even studies that have compared health expenditure with survival um, and investment in healthcare equipment such as the kind of CAT scanners that people use to diagnose cancer and of course radiotherapy equipment that is used to treat it, then there are wide differences in availability of and access to that kind of equipment in countries with low and high survival respectively. It is also though a message of great hope because many patients diagnosed with cancer think it's a death sentence and in fact it very frequently isn't. That's true. Survival from cancer in the richer countries of the world has increased quite considerably over the last 30 or 40 years. And typically in a country like uh, the UK or the Nordic countries, for example, in Europe, one can expect of the order of 50% or more of patients in general with all cancers combined to survive at least five years. And for many cancers, um, say testicular cancer in men, of course, and Hodgkin's disease, a type of lymphoma in both sexes, 
cases. Survival can be extremely high. The same is true of cancer of the uterus in women, where very few people, or women in this case, will be expected to die from that disease once they've been diagnosed with it. But of course, when the survival rates are lower in other countries, it's not because, in general, I suspect, the doctors are somehow different or worse. It is that they are working in a system that doesn't permit them to deploy their skills to the best effect. Michelle Coleman of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And that wraps up audio news for now. We'll be back with plenty more very soon. So until next time, from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.